theyeshiva.net. The Magad of Mizrich was one of the great spiritual leaders and teachers of his day. We don't know the year he was born. We do know the year he passed away. Yutas Kislev Tovkov Lamed Gimel, 1772. The end, December 1772. The 19th of Kislev Tovkov Lamed Gimel, 5533. He was the successor of the famous Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, founder of the Hasidic movement, who passed away in the year Tovkov Chav 1760 on Shavuos. The Baal Shem Tov passed away on Shavuos, and one year later, he was succeeded by his student, Rabbeinu Doiv Ber, the Rebbe Reber, known as the Magad of Mizrich, because he lived in Mizrich, which is a little city in the Ukraine. The Baal Shem Tov is buried in Medjibuzh, also in the Ukraine, passed away Shvuas. A year later, the Magad took him over, succeeded him, Shvuas, Tovkov Chafalov, Shvuas 1761. And he was the leader of the young, fledgling Hasidic movement for the next 12 years until his passing in 1772. The Magad of Mizrich, Rabdoiv Ber, has a very powerful, homiletical, Hasidic teaching on another mission in the ethics of the fathers, Pirkeyavis, Peregimel. And I'll read to you the Mishnah and give you the translation. It's a very, I have to say, it's a very sharp and potent translation. And the first time I saw it, it was like, ouch. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it was like, wow. You know, it, it, if you're sensitive and you're open to it, it can hit the spot in a positive way. So the Mishnah says in Pekayavis, Ethics chapter 3, Reb Yaakov, Reb Yaakov says, Hamahalich bederech. If somebody is walking on the road, he's taking a hike, and he's learning Torah, and he interrupts his learning. Literally, he interrupts himself from his learning. And he says, How gorgeous is this tree? How beautiful is this landscape? The Torah considers it as though he endangered his life. He put his life into danger. It's a very difficult Mishnah to understand. This person was walking. He was taking a hike. He was taking a stroll. He was taking a walk. He was traveling. He's on the road. And he's learning Torah. Either he's thinking Torah, he's talking Torah to himself, he's schmoozing with somebody else. And then he interrupts his learning. And he extols the beauty of the landscape, beauty of the tree, the beauty of the landscape. So he says, he's in, it's, the, the Torah considers, considers this a mortal sin, a fatal sin. He's like endangering his life. But what did he do? He was praising God's creation. In fact, our sages instituted many blessings that we make when we observe various phenomena of nature that triggers a sense of gratitude and wonder and marvel. Our sages themselves, you look at King David, David in the book of Psalms. Often he, he extols the beauties of creation. The famous Barchi Nafshi that we're going to say on Rish Chodesh, Psalms chapter 104, Barchi Nafshi, where he goes into Marabu, Masech, Hashem, Kulu the diversity and the wisdom of creation and of every creature. It shows the brilliance, the marvel. Maimonides writes in the laws of the foundations of chapter 2, that is a mitzvah to love God and have fear of God, or reverence, and how do you achieve it? And he says, When you contemplate on the extraordinary 
creation that the Rebbein Shalom, that God has created, and he elaborates on it at length, and he says, that's why I'm dedicating a few chapters to discuss some of these marvels and wonders of, wonders of creation. What does Rabbi Yaakov mean? So there are different interpretations that have been presented throughout the generations. One is a very homo, is one is a homiletical interpretation by the Magid. And to appreciate his interpretation, we have to focus on the word. It says, Hamahalach Baderach. He's walking on the road. Vishayne, he's learning. And he interrupts himself from his learning. It seems redundant, right? It could have just said he was learning. And he interrupted. He interrupts. We know what he interrupts, whatever he was doing. It's like if I'm talking and you interrupt me, I say, stop interrupting. I don't have to say what you're interrupting. It's obvious. It says, he was walking on the road, Vishayin, and he was learning, umafsik, and he interrupted, and he said, how beautiful is this tree? The word memishnase seems superfluous. Furthermore, the word umafsik is also superfluous. Could have just said, he was walking on the road, and he was learning, and he says, how beautiful the tree is. Obviously, in order to say that, he interrupted his learning. So obviously, those two words in the Mishnah are the key words that really capture the essence of what Rabbi Yaakov is teaching us. And then why does the Mishnah say, he says how beautiful this tree is, how beautiful this landscape is, these two examples that are used. What is the meaning of this? So the Mizritcha Magid says, the idea is that he's a Mahalath Bederach. He's walking on the road of life. He's on the path of life. He says, and he's learning Torah. Not he interrupts his learning. It doesn't say umafsik mishnasoi. Umafsik limbude. It says umafsik mimishnasoi. Says the maggot. Says the maggot. He's walking on the road. And you know what derech is? He says, hoylech bederech hayosha. He's actually walking on the right path. Derech. He's on the derech, like you say. On the derech. Off the derech. This guy is on the derech. Marvelous interpretation. In fact, the beginning of chapter 2 of Perkyov is Rebbe Yoimer Ezi Derech Yisharish Let's talk about the right path. So chapter 3, this guy is walking on the right path. Umavsek. But that path gets interrupted. Mimishnose. From his learning. It's the learning that causes him and takes him away from the right path. Umafsik. The hefsik, the interruption happens. Mimishnasik. From his learning. It's the learning that causes this interruption. Why? He's learning Torah. The answer is because what happens sometimes is the Magid says, Shabbosaloi gadlos vihispirus machmas mishnasik. The learning, instead of refining him and turning him into a humble human being and into a gorgeous human being and into a sensitive human being, the learning sometimes causes him a sense of arrogance, a sense of vanity, a sense of futile pride, a sense of arrogance, a sense of holy, I'm holier than thou, superior to everybody else. Instead of learning Torah, causing me to be able to see the divine inside of me, and therefore to see the divine within every single person. 
turns me into a person who's more menschlich, who's more empathetic, who has more compassion, who has more kindness. What happens is the opposite. The learning itself causes me to lose the divine plot. It takes me away from the essence of Torah. Hillel told a non-Jew who came to him and says, teach me the whole Torah when I'm standing on one leg. Shabbos, Daflamet Aleph, Tracti Shabbos 31. Teach me the whole Torah standing on one leg. How long can you stand on one leg for, let's say, 30 seconds? Hillel says, I don't need 30 seconds. I'll give it to you in five seconds. What you dislike to be done to you, don't do to anybody else. That is the whole Torah. Everything else is commentary. Now go study the commentary. In other words, Hillel, the great Hillel, who lived around a hundred years before the destruction of the second temple. And he wanted, and he founded the school of Beis Hillel. And he wanted to describe what is the whole Torah, the essence of Torah. It's basically treating another person like you want to be treated yourself. And everything else in Torah is commentary on this statement. So that means that anything I'm learning in Torah is supposed to bring me to a deeper place of love, a deeper place of connection, a deeper place of the awareness of somebody else, a deeper place of midistoivus, of powerful values that make me sensitive and empathetic and understanding the plight, the needs, the condition, the reality of another person. In other words, real Torah makes me a less judgmental person, a more expansive person. It allows me to see the godliness in every person and really in every creature and every reality that exists in the world. It allows me to see the ruchnius, the koyach apoyel benifl, the spirituality in every single reality. But in this case, the Maggit says, umafsik mi mishnosa, from the mishnosa itself, from the learning itself, he gets severed. As the Gemara says in Masechta Yumna, that sometimes the Torah, if a person has a schus, the Torah becomes samchayim, becomes a, a potion for life. Loizacha says the Gemara in Yuma. People are learning now Yuma. I am based, I think. Loizacha nasas leisamamavas. If a person doesn't have the merit, the Torah becomes lethal. It becomes poisonous. Torah is poisonous? No. Loizacha nasas leisamamavas. Torah is holy. Torah is divine. But the way the person registers it, internalizes it, absorbs it, it becomes poisonous for him. Sometimes you can have the greatest vitamin in the world, but for this person it's poisonous. Because this person misconstrues, this person misinterprets, this person doesn't understand. They're absorbing and utilizing the Torah to feed their own traumas. And when I'm using the Torah to feed and sustain my own traumas, my own fears, my own insecurities, my own narcissism, my own OCD, my own personality disorders, my own mood disorders, my own mental illness, my own depression, my own psychosis, my own borderline, or whatever other illness or challenge I'm dealing with, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, and instead of seeing the Torah as a blueprint, to help me deal with my struggle in an honest and authentic and vulnerable way. I use the Torah to cover up my insecurities, to cover up my issues, to cover up my problems, and to despise and loathe anybody who challenges my ego. And sometimes the more I learn, the more dangerous I become. And the more I learn, the more narcissistic I become. And the more I know, the more impossible I become. 
Because, yeah, look at me. I'm so knowledgeable. And I have so many sources. And I'm even called a Talmud Chachem. I'm a great Torah scholar. And in the name of that, I can be dismissive. I can be arrogant. I can be abusive. I can be insensitive. I could sometimes be obnoxious and rude. Oy, oy, oy. What happens now is I took the divine potion for life. And because of my inability, my incompetence, my unwillingness to confront my egos, my insecurities, my own traumas, I now impose it, impose it on Torah. I turn the Torah into a destructive force because of the way I'm using it. Okay, I went off a little bit here. Back to the Maggot. So here's a person that leaves the right path. This path gets interrupted. Because of the learning. From the learning, as he says. The learning itself causes him a futile sense of arrogance. This sometimes happens to people. It's very sad. It's also very pathetic. I use religion itself. I use my scholarship and my learning and my turn itself to live a life that is completely contrary to the whole spirit of Torah, to the Weltanschauung of Torah, to the whole message of Torah. The whole message of Torah, Hillel says, is to see the godliness in every person, to bring out the best in people. Never to treat somebody in a way that you don't want to be treated. It's a great principle of Torah. And the market says, you know how this is expressed, this person says, how beautiful is this tree? How beautiful is this landscape? Says, what is he talking about? The Mishnah here is intimating something. The Torah compares a person to a tree. In Parsha Shaift, in Book of Deuteronomy, Person is a tree of the field. The Navi Yirmiyo Jeremiah compares the person to a landscape. He says, I want you to plow yourself and turn yourself into a landscape before you plant. So the Maggit says, the sages were very sensitive to the language of Tanakh. This is an intimation, this is a remez, this is a hint. This person, as a result of his learning, Umafsik. He gets cut off from the right path. He gets cut off from the shine of the learning because of the learning. And he's now busy saying, How beautiful is this tree? In the words of the Magan, He's talking about himself. He develops this selfishness, this narcissism, this foolish sense of boastfulness, thinking about himself. I'm at the center of the world. How gorgeous is this tree? Talking about himself. A person is a tree. How gorgeous is this landscape? Talking about himself. He's endangering his life spiritually and therefore physically. Meaning, he's completely endangering his life, his soul, because the essence of the soul is that it's humble. It's divine. It's a It's part of a larger whole. It's part of a larger, greater picture. It's part of infinity. And the worst thing, the greatest enemy to experiencing infinity, to experiencing truth, to experiencing a higher reality is the sense of arrogance, which usually results in insecurity, which usually results in more arrogance to be able to cover up my insecurity. 
So he says, when the focus becomes how beautiful I am, how gorgeous I am, the person is now obsessed with self-consciousness. What do I look like? And what do they think of me? And how am I doing? And what type of, <laughs> what type of reputation I have? And a person cannot liberate himself or herself from self-consciousness. And the more I learn, the more self-conscious I become. And the more hubris, and the more self-inflation, and the more haughtiness, and the more selfishness. How gorgeous I am. So gorgeous tree, a gorgeous landscape. Don't confuse this with recognizing your qualities. It's very important for a person to have a recognition of their qualities and their virtues and their mindless. Chavetz Chaim used to say, Hari, not only are not about others, you don't speak gossip about yourself either. It's important to have awareness of who you are and what your contribution is and what your strengths are. But the Maggid is talking about a person who allows the learning itself to turn them into a character that is really suffering from a lot of haughty vanity and futile hubris. Here we have a classic example and interpretation. Just chose one of the concept of how important it is that the learning of Torah, the practice of Torah, comes together with a sense of decency, menschlichkeit, humility. A wonderful story I heard from the person himself. So Jew lives in Pittsburgh, a very special man. His name is Reb Meir Goldwasser. And Reb Meir told this to me a number of years ago. He says, I was a yeshiva boy learning in Telstone in Eretz Yisrael. He said, when I was living in America, I think he was learning in the Tells in Cleveland, in the Tells of Yeshiva, he said, throughout my years, I would often phone Reb Moshe Feinstein, Zechet Tzadik Levrach. Reb Moshe lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He was the Rosh Hashiva of Mesifta, Teferis Yerushalayim, for many years. And Reb Moshe, anybody who knew him and remembers the Lower East Side of those days, lived a very humble life. You know, he walked himself and he answered the telephone himself and anybody could come over to speak to him. And by the way, the Lower East Side till today retains a certain shtel because of Reb Moshe's influence over so many decades, just for the record. And he says, I was learning in Telstone. And I had some halacha question. So I thought to myself, let me call up Reb Moshe. And I had the number to his apartment. And Reb tells me. And I ring. And Reb Moshe picks up the phone. And he says, hello. He told, he, he, it was mimicking. Hello. And then I hear from his voice. I just woke him up. And I realized, oh, I'm in Israel. And I was calling in the morning. And I forgot that in New York, it's two or three in the morning. I called Reb Moshe in the middle of the night, literally schlepped him out of bed, woke him up. He's like, hello? Reb Moshe says, I was so embarrassed. I said, oh, I'm shuldicht. I apologize. I'm calling you from Israel. I didn't realize I'm waking up. The Rosh Hashiva in the middle of the night. I'm sorry. And I'm about to hang up. Moshe says, no, 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 don't hang, don't hang up. Don't hang up. But I need a few minutes. Wait on the phone, I need a few minutes. And Ramey said, I felt so bad and I understood. He probably wanted to wash his hands, make the blessings. He's going to answer a question. He probably wanted to make a berchah satayra. 
a blessing that we make in the morning before we start learning Torah. He took a few minute break. Whatever it was that he needed to tend to, it took a quite a few minutes. He comes back to the phone. He apologizes for the delay. And he says, how can I help you? And I asked Reb Moshe the question, the Shiloh. And Reb Moshe listens. And he gives me an answer. Great. I thank him. And he says, give me your address. I would like to have the address where you are at. And I'm wondering, why does he need my address? And then I thought maybe Reb Moshe has a custom that everybody who asks him a question, he might write down the question and the answer. And perhaps he mails it to the person who asks, so the person will have it in writing. That was my speculation, perhaps why he's asking me for my address. But I didn't ask questions. I gave Reb Moshe my address. He took it down. I said goodbye. I thanked him. He said goodbye. And I hung up the phone. A few weeks later, the mayor tells me, mail comes to me in yeshiva, Reb Moshe Feinstein. I open up the envelope. It's a check with a little note. And Reb Moshe says, I have to apologize. You called me. And I kept you on the phone for quite a few minutes. And I know that it's an expensive call. You were calling from Israel. Remember, a lot of people don't even understand what I'm talking about in 2021. But you have to understand that in the 1970s, a call from Israel to New York was very expensive. And every minute that you were on the call was expensive. It cost money. So Moshe said, I, and because you waited on the phone because of me, so therefore, and I found out how much money it probably costs, so I'm sending you a check here for this money that I owe you because of the amount of minutes that I made you wait until I got back onto the phone after you phoned me. And Mary Goldwasser tells me, he says, Rabbi, why, why? I call this person in the middle of the night. I wake him up. <laughs> I wake him up. Yeah? Some people would get upset, would hang up the phone on me, would give me a piece of their mind. Okay, he didn't. He sends me money because he made me wait on the phone, of course, because I woke him up in the middle of the night and he had to tend to some needs and do some stuff before he got on the phone. It teaches you about a person. It gives you perspective. It teaches you about what Torah does to a person. I shared once a story. I heard this last time I was in Israel, right before, a little before Corona. A Yid from Bnei Brak. He tells me that the Ponovicherov, Rabbi Yosef Shloyme Kahnman, Zechet Sadek as you know, he built in Bnei Brak orphanages for orphan children. He had for boys, he had for girls. And one of these orphanages had a bunch of girls who were orphaned. They didn't have parents. And a Jew comes to the Ponovicherov one day and he says, Ponovicherov, we have a big problem. What happened? These girls were growing up and they would have Friday night meals together in their home where they lived. And you know what happens, right? They're having meals and they started to sing. And they were singing loud and this neighbor hears the girl singing. So he comes to the Ponovicherov and he says, you have to stop this. It's not right. I'm not going to hear women sing. I'm not going to hear girls sing. And I'm the neighbor. And they sing loud. Tell them, no singing at the Shabbos meals. There's neighbors. I'm not going to hear them singing. The Ponovicherov understood 
that this is a, it's a delicate question. He wasn't just going to go tell the girls no singing anymore. So he told the Jew, I hear the problem. Allow me to consult with the Chazaynish. Chazaynish was still alive. Rabbeinu Avram Yeshaya Karel, it's Echet Tzadik he passed away. Kislev Yudalad, Cheshven or Kislev, the end of 1953. So he was still alive. He went to the Chazaynish to consult with him. What's the proper response? And he starts telling the Chazaynish, obviously in Yiddish, they were talking Yiddish, he tells them the story. And the story is basically, there's these girls in the orphanage, who Friday night are singing songs and the neighbor hears them and he gets upset and he comes running to them. As he's telling the story about these girls singing, Chazanish interrupts the Ponovich Rav, Rav Kahnman, in the middle of the story. And he says, Azoi, Azoi, Azap Suratoiva. The Maidlach Zingen, the Maidlach Freyen Zich Enemedan, the Maidlach Fire and Shabbos. Wow. What good news you're giving me. How special this piece of information. These girls, orphans, grew up without fathers, without mothers, and yet they have reached a point in life where they can celebrate together. They feel that they can trust life enough to be able to express it in song and melodies and jubilation. They have the joy and the giggle of life has been restored to them to the point that they can celebrate Shabbos together. And sing, wow, this is such positive, powerful news. The Panovichirov couldn't even get himself to finish the story and ask the question. The response was very obvious. You're dealing here with orphans. They lost everything. Friday night they come together and they found within themselves the stamina and the vitality to enjoy life, to rebuild their lives with friendship, with camaraderie to enjoy Shabbos, to sing songs together. What an extraordinary moment to celebrate. Now you'll ask me a question. The Chazanish and the Panovichirov didn't know about the issue. <laughs> they knew about the issue very well. But the point is, you have an issue. Go to Shul. Finish your meal. The girl starts saying, go to Shul, learn Shagasaya, learn the Sivis HaMishpat, learn Chaysh HaMishpat, Learn Baba Bastro Masechta Chulin if you want it could be Erevin or Psachim or Masechta Yuma until two in the morning and then you'll come up to sleep. If that's not even good enough, move for Shabbos to Yerushalayim. You'll figure it out. But when Yiddishkeit is divorced from that empathy, from that connection to people's feelings, from understanding who people are and what they're going through and appreciating their backgrounds and their challenges, their journeys. Then the Torah itself becomes a Samamav. The Torah itself is stripped from its dignity. Not because the Torah is stripped, but because I, the person absorbing it, completely mis- misconstrues it. They don't get the point. It's a great story. I once heard in, in, by Hasidim, they're very careful about Gibrachts. Matzah shouldn't get wet on Pesach. This is one of the stringencies in the world of the Hasidim. And the reason is, after the matzah bakeries were introduced, they felt that the matzahs baked so fast. The Balatanya has a chuva about this famous chuva. Matzahs baked so fast, and therefore perhaps there may be some particles of flour that weren't baked, and if the matzah gets wet, it could become chametz. This is called the stringency of matzah shreya Gibrachts. Was once at a meal, a Pesach meal, 
of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchuk Shneis, and Rebbe Hayatz, passed away in New York in 1950. And there was a Jew there who came from another community, and there was what's called vinaigrette on the table. You know what vinaigrette is? like beets. And he took his matzah, and he dipped it in the beets. Now, among many Hasidim, they're stringent, not only not to dip the matzah in water, but any liquid. So he dipped the matzah in the beets, in the beet sauce, in the beet liquid, in the beets, whatever there was on the table. So the person or the people standing near him, the Yeshiva boys, got very upset in front of the Rebbe, in front of the Rebbe Rayats. He's making the matzah wet. So they gave him a piece of their mind. <laughs> they told him, what are you doing? The Rebbe was on the other side of the table and he asked Rabbi Shmuel Levitin, was one of his Hasidim, what's, what's the commotion there? So Rabbi Shmuel found out and he said that this is true. Tip the matzah and the beets. They got upset. They're telling him it's not what we do. It's inappropriate. You don't do it. And the Rebbe looked at them and he said these words in Yiddish. Besser aroitin matzah v'yaroitin ponim. Better a red matzah than a red face. It's not that he didn't care about the matzah being dry. He cared a lot about it. It was a serious stringency by Hasidim that comes from the Balatanya. But you have to understand, if your stringency is going to cause you to humiliate somebody, to cause them to blush by denigrating him, by dismissing him, by disrespecting him, by delegitimizing him, he says, better a red matzah than a red face. Sometimes, though, you know, I just heard uh, a beautiful story that Reb Shmuel Birenbaim, famous guy, Reb Shmuel Birenbaim was the Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, Seichet Tzadik Levracha. And uh, he spoke at the Shloshim of a Jew here from Muncie. His name was Reb Leo Shraga Newhouse, Shreina Levracha. Passed away, Shvu was 23 years ago. So at his Shloshim, Rabbi Shmuel Birenbaum spoke. Rabbi Shmuel said that in the yeshiva of Baranovich, Oihel Torah Baranovich was the yeshiva of Rabbi Khanan Vasserman, Hashem Yinkam Damai, who was murdered in Kovan in 1941. There were two boys, and they were close friends. One was a Litvish Shabacher, and one was a Chassidish Shabacher. One came from Lithuania, and one came from a Hasidic home, Hasidic community. And he says they were very close friends. Person telling the story, Rabbi Avram Newhouse, the son of, of Rabbi Shragi Newhouse, who heard it at the Shloishim of his father, said it sounded from Rabbi Shmuel that he was the Bachan. It's a story that it sounded, he didn't say it clearly, but it sounded from him that he was the person with whom the story happened. And he said, one day the Litvish Bachar saw the Hasidic Bachar writing a letter to his Rebbe. He wrote a letter. And in the title he wrote, Harav Hagon Hatzadik. Gone means a great genius. Great gone, tremendous scholar, great Torah Tzaddik means a righteous person. So he was a Litvish Bacher, a Lithuanian Bacher, with all the connotations. So he says, he says, your Rebbe might be a Tzaddik, but he's not known to be a gone. He's not known to be, <laughs> to be a gone. It's, it's not his thing. Do you feel that this is an accurate and authentic title? So Rabbi Shmuel says, the Bacher responds to this boy, and again, it sounded like it was to him. He says, Torah has many, many sugyas. 
Torah has many, many dimensions. Sometimes there's a gone in Shnaim Oiches and Betalas. Sometimes there's a genius in analyzing the Mishnah, the beginning of a Metziah, of two people who come to court, both holding on to a cloak and everyone claims Kula Shali. And he's brilliant in analyzing it and dissecting it and explaining it and deducing from it and expounding on it, etc. So, but sometimes you have somebody who's a gone in Vahaftalarecha it's also a part of Torah. He's a genius in loving another person like you love yourself. He's a genius in that. And sometimes there's a gone in Vahaftas Hashem Alekecha. A gone in Avas Hashem. He says, trust me, my Rebbe is a gone. It may not be a gone in things that you consider the only thing, only the only topic that is worthwhile to be a genius. And Rabbi Shmuel Birnbaum apparently was very moved by the answer. And he introduced it by the shloshim of this person who was a legendary, a legendary balchesed, a legendary balstok. The truth is, if I may say, it's all one. It's not even separate things. It's not like you're a god in Shnaimachs and Batalas, and you're a god in Vahtorecha Kamacha. It's really all one and the same thing. Because Torah, first and foremost, is divine. It's not about intellectual, mathematical equations. Not about who has a greater IQ, so I can outdo you in learning. The key essence of Torah is Kirvas Alikim. It's divine wisdom. It's the divine will. So the only way I can be a conduit for divine wisdom is through humility, through cultivating my own spiritual refinement. And when I cultivate my own spiritual refinement, I see the goodness in people. I accentuate the goodness in people. I see the godliness in people. But sometimes people hear these ideas, but they still, sometimes we still see it more as another ritual, another law. It's part of a checklist to check off, which means you'll say, okay, today I did this mitzvah, I did this mitzvah, checklist, checklist, checklist. I also did chesed, I also did kindness. That itself can be robotic. It's like almost a forced Form of kindness. Torah wants me to be menschlich, so right now I'm going to behave as though I'm empathetic, as though I'm sensitive. How do we teach to ourselves and how do we teach people that love to another person is organic? It's natural, it's innate. I think women have it much more, uh, much more natural than men for two reasons. First of all, the way God created them. And second of all, that sometimes the way we learn in yeshiva with such a focus on intellectual rigorousness and precisions takes away people from their natural emotions and empathy. It's probably much better today. But I remember sometimes when we're learning in yeshiva, there's so much focus on intellectual brilliance and creativity. And sometimes the person who celebrated is the person who can prove everybody else wrong. And then you feeling that those are the skills you need to bring into marriage as well. <laughs> so if I'm in yeshiva, and my teacher, my Rebbe, is giving a presentation, a shir, and I can prove him wrong, and I can come with a source that show that the foundation of the presentation was erroneous, or I can prove a colleague of mine, a friend, wrong, and I'm right. Ooh, I'm considered the success story of the yeshiva. Now I graduate yeshiva, I go into marriage... So naturally, I want to bring the skills from yeshiva into my marriage. So what's the greatest thing I can do? Prove my wife wrong. 
<laughs> and that's what happens. And in a marriage, it's disastrous. What proved so successful in yeshiva, what made you the success story in yeshiva, makes you the failure story in your marriage. You don't need to prove your wife wrong. <laughs> so there is this divorce, this like this separation between Torah and real life. But the truth is that if my focus in yeshiva is to prove you wrong and to prove my teacher wrong, so I could show you how brilliant I am, tells the Magid here, you're missing the whole point of Torah. Of course I want to seek the truth. And of course if I feel that my teacher is not explaining it to me correct and I have a real question, I have to ask. And of course if I feel that my friend is not explaining it right and I have a better approach, I should present the approach. But the focus is searching for the truth. The focus is humility. The focus is emes. The focus is bittel. The focus is was will der nicht was ich will. Focus is what God wants, not what I want. And then when you take that into your marriage, it's a whole different story. You taking that humility into your marriage, that refinement into your marriage, then it's a whole different type of relationship. Oh, my dearest friends. My dearest, holiest friends, you know, sometimes people see chesed and avas Yisrael as just something else to check off. It's like, I also have the perfection of chesed. It's like, how do we teach ourselves, how do we teach people about an inherent, internal, organic experience of empathy? Not just this fake smile that I put on in order to be able to tell myself, I also have the quality of kindness and therefore I'm going to get a better portion in Ghanaian. But just a, a, a warmth. A warmth. Torah needs to come with Derech Eretz, with Varimkeit, with Menschlichkeit, with appreciating the godliness in every person. That's what Torah is all about. Torah is making you sensitive to the perspective of the divine in everything in the world, a beginning in a person, in a mind, in a soul, in a heart. How can it be that somebody in the name of Halacha doesn't hear the cry of a woman who's being abused or of a man who's being abused? How can somebody who's steeped in Torah be insensitive to the cry of a child who was hurt or traumatized or abused? How? How is that possible? What type of Torah am I teaching? Are we teaching? What type of Torah am I absorbing? How can it be that instead of Torah cultivating and creating within people that which Torah has to create within people, people who are the most sensitive and the most empathetic to the plight and pain of the other people, people who live and breathe, I will not stand idly when I see somebody's blood being spilled. People who emulate the first teacher of Moshe who goes out to his brothers. He's not stuck in his cocoon. He becomes great and he goes out to his brothers. And the Medrash says, what makes him great that he goes out to his brothers? He could stay in his palace, but that doesn't make him great. He goes out to his brothers. And the first story we know about the first greatest Rosh Hashiva and Rebbe Moshe Nabeinu was what? He sees an innocent Jew being abused and beaten. And what does he do? He stands up to the criminal and he saves the person. That's the first story we know about the first and greatest teacher. 
of Torah in all of history, the man who we still call Moshe Rabbeinu, he's our Rebbe, our teacher, till this very day, Torah Tzivalon Moshe, Zichru Torah's Moshe Avdi. That's what Torah does to a person. Torah cultivates within a person that when you see a crime happening on your block, in your shul, in your neighborhood, in your community, instead of me being passive, and instead of turning an eye, instead of saying I'm busy learning and I'm going to go back to my books and bury myself in my books, how can I go back to the books when the whole book is here to tell you that 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 the essence of Torah is to treat another person with kindness and respect. The essence of Torah is to have a relationship with Hashem. And if you love Hashem, you love His children. Somebody who tells me, I hate you, but I, I, I love you, but I hate your kids. You don't love me. If you love me, you love my children. You love what I love. So you're screaming, you love Torah, but there's somebody suffering. There's a child, there's a teenager, there's a woman here who's been abused for years by her husband. How could you be quiet? In the name of Torah, the people who carry the flag of Torah, the people who carry the flag of Allah, they have to be the embodiment of empathy, of sensitivity, of standing up to any situation where an innocent person is being neglected or abused or mocked, downtrodden, dejected. Instead, we sometimes use the Torah to defend, to defend criminals and to defend our own criminal actions. We, we lose the plot. Let me conclude with a story. I heard the story this last Friday night. <laughs> So I never shared it before because I never heard it before. I was at a bar mitzvah. I was at a bar mitzvah of a close friend of mine, Rabbi Yaakov and Chami Elbogen, who made a bar mitzvah of their son, Elio Shraga, Shlita. And there was a guest who came from Eretz Yisrael for the bar mitzvah. His name is Rabbi Yankel Grossman. Rabbi Yankel Grossman is a Tayyid. He grew up in Bote Varsha in Jerusalem. Together with his brother, Rabbi Yitzchak David Grossman from Migdala Emek, Migdalar, with their father in Batei Varsha, Bistral Grossman, Rosh Hashiva of Karlin, a big gun, a big Talmud Chacham. And Rabbi Yankel Grossman tells me, Amaisa, that he saw with his own eyes. He said it was 1980. And he came for one year to learn by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Taim Chitmimim in Brooklyn, the Crown Knight section of Brooklyn. He learned there as a Yeshiva Bacher for a year, one year before he got married. And he says it was Friday night, late Friday night, midwinter, beginning of 1980. And those of you who know the cold winter nights of New York City, <laughs> with the wind, with the wind blowing, the temperature could sometimes go to 10, 20 below zero. He says it was such a night. Rabbi Yankel told me to me it felt 30 below zero. <laughs> Whether it was 30, it was 20, it was 15. It was Friday night. He says it wasn't just cold. It wasn't just cold. I said, you ice You stood a few minutes outside and you felt that you can't take it anymore. He says it was late at night and the Lubavitcher Rebbe came out of his room in shul where he would sit and learn Friday night late and he was walking home. The Rebbe would walk home very quietly himself. There was not, an, he didn't like fanfare and drama, but there were three boys who on their own would walk far away from the Rebbe at a distance, 
just, you know, so the Rebbe shouldn't be alone late at night, walk alone in the street. So they would walk behind him, but it was a pretty significant distance. Now, the Rebbe wasn't dressed for the weather. He didn't have a scarf, he didn't have earmuffs, he didn't have gloves, no air over there. He had his kapata, his bekisha, and he had a simple wool coat and his hat. He says he walked out. It was so cold, he says. He tells me 30 below zero. And he was one of the boys who was walking behind. The Rebbe would walk home. It was a nice walk. It was from Eastern Parkway and Kingston Avenue to President between Brooklyn and New York Avenue, if you know the geography of Brooklyn. He says, in the middle of the way, a woman walks over to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And it's late at night, so there's nobody there. There's no Gaboyim, there's no assistance, there's no Meshamshim, nobody to run the show. And she starts talking to the Rebbe. And he tells me, the Bianco tells me, a half an hour, a half an hour. He said, I felt so bad. It was so cold. But she was talking, she was asking this and asking that, and, and the Rebbe spoke to her outside Friday night on the way home, late at night, for a half an hour. And the Bachram, he says, we're quite upset. <laughs> we're quite upset. And when she was to finish, we would give her a piece of our mind with no holds bars, tell her exactly what we think about her behavior. First of all, it's Friday night, the Rebbe's on the way home to his wife. They didn't have children. The Rebbe would eat himself with his wife, Rebbe Tzachayim Mushka, for decades. I don't know if you know, that's interesting. There was no tish, there was no fabreng, and Friday night was the Rebbe and his wife alone for decades. Maybe there was a relative would sometimes come very rarely. There were not many relatives who survived. So that's first of all. Second of all, the weather, the weather. The Rebbe wasn't 20 years old. He was a man, he was almost 80 years old. And a year earlier, 77, he suffered a mat, double massive heart attack. What you call menschlichkeit. The weather was freezing and the Rebbe wasn't dressed. He wasn't in a down coat with one of the Ukrainian fur hats, you know, that go down with, with three scarves, with earmuffs, with uh, nothing. With Uggs, no no Uggs. I don't know if you know, he had torn shoes. It was not, uh, he had torn shoes. You could see the socks on the back of the shoes were torn. He tells me the Bachrim were very upset. A half an hour, or at least it seemed like a half an hour to him, I should say. I don't know if it was exactly a half an hour. Finally, she finished talking. And they thought, okay... What, what do you say? Baruch Shepatrani, right? Baruch Shepatrani. And the Rebbe would walk home and go to his Rebetzin. And the woman starts walking towards them. And suddenly they see the Rebbe is not walking. He turns around and he's staring at her and at them. Waits till she passes them. Now, of course, they're not going to scream at her in the presence of the Rebbe because he told me he was looking at us. Looking at us, very, very focused eyes. And he waited till she passed us. So Rabbi Grossman tells me, Yankel tells me, he says, Rabbi Jacobson, I thought she's going to pass us and he's going to walk home. But I knew that the Rebbe was afraid justifiably that we're going to go after her and we are going to give her such rebuke and musr. He said, so the Rebbe stood and did not move and waited and waited and waited until she got to her house. We couldn't catch up to her. She walked and walked and walked. He says, I don't know if it was a half a mile or a mile. He just waited and looked. Maybe he also waited for her to get home because of other reasons, maybe because of the hour at night. 
when she was completely gone from our eyesight and we could not catch up to her and he felt she was safe, he turned around and he went home and we followed him home. A little story, but it teaches you so much, my dear friends, about what Torah does to a person. What a Ben Torah is and what a Bas Torah is. In these small little moments, it teaches you that the foundation of foundations is menschlichkeit, empathy, love, affection, sensitivity, connection. And the more religious, the more sensitive, the more God-fearing, the more empathetic, the more frum, the more you see godliness in every person. And in every situation. This is the Derech Eretz that Chazal say. It's not just the introduction for Torah. But it imbues Torah with the divine dignity. That we, the nation that was given the Torah, ought to introduce to ourselves, our homes, our community, and the world at large. Until that moment, when this truth will emerge in its full glory. The oneness that connects all of us and connects the whole world. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.